All right. So uh, I'd like to welcome Charles Ardai to Comics Asylum, and he is the editor of Hard Case Crime. I got that correct, right? You did. Thank you. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about his new uh, comic book series, Gun Honey. So, Thank you. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So first of all, before we get into Gun Honey, how have things been for you going through the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic? Oh, thanks and for asking. Everything Not too else. Bad. Well, look, at the beginning of the pandemic, I live in New York City, and uh, there was a period of about a month there where it looked like New York City was going to be the uh, the epidemic center of uh, of COVID. And the, so that was that was not the happiest month of all. Uh, but we've gotten through it. You know, we, we've been locked down on and off. But right now, things are they feel much, much better and back to normal or close to normal. You know, my daughter's still going to her elementary school with a mask on all the time. But, that, you know, that's that's good for her health. She's under 12. She can't be uh, can't be vaccinated. No, it's true. It's um. I've spoken to a few people, uh, some creatives such as yourself, as well as regular folk. And it's amazing how we've had to adjust to the unexpected, right? It's true. I mean, your whole, but I mean, when you do podcasts, for example, uh, what a wonderful thing that you can reach out to anyone anywhere in the world and have this kind of conversation. And this technology has bloomed in the, in the pandemic of necessity, but now anyone can talk to anyone. And it's a little video screen, just like on Star Trek when I was a kid, you know, you push a <laughs> button and there's someone to talk to. It's great. I, I, you know, I mean, I'd rather not have had the pandemic, but if you have right. to have it, at least we, uh, now everyone uses this video calling thing. And the, the irony is, is that, you know, we look at technology um, sometimes as the downfall of society. But I think that if we didn't have Zoom and Google meets and all that sort of stuff, the pandemic would have been even worse, especially for the elderly population, sure. right? Oh, they just absolutely. losing that connection. Yeah, my dad's 90 and having this connection has been very useful. I mean, he's living in the same city. So in theory, I can right. just go there. But, you know, when I'm not physically there, uh, it makes a huge difference. And, and that's with a 90-year-old, you know, when you're talking about people who are our age, give or take, uh, it's really pervasive, the use of technology. And look, I love books. I like physical books. I don't read eBooks, but our books are available as eBooks. And for a lot of people who were trapped indoors during the pandemic, having eBooks to download made a huge difference, especially when deliveries of paper and ink might be stuck on a, on a ship somewhere in a port. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of both the old style way of doing things and new technologies. I think you have to embrace both. Oh, definitely. And we were, we were, my friends and I were laughing the other day about how you look back at the 60s Star Trek episodes. Yeah. And we're basically using their tech right now. You know, basically, that's right. You know, you've got the communicator, <laughs> you've got the tricorder. The one yeah. thing you don't have really is a phaser, but I mean, we, we've still, yeah. we're still using, by, by comparison, we're still using muskets and that sort of thing. Right. But maybe, maybe one day I, I'm, I'm not, uh, despite writing and uh, publishing a book called Gun Honey, I'm not the biggest fan of guns in the world. <laughs> and so I'm not dying for there to be better phasers in the world. But, no. uh, but, but you're right. So were you watching Shatner go into space? I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I, I it's kind of, I guess, I guess you'd say it's meta when you think of Captain Kirk in real life going into space and he's 90. He's oh, 90. I can't even believe he's 90. Let's start with that. You yeah. know, Scotty's gone. Bones is gone. Spock is gone. Uh, poor Uhura is, uh, you know, yes. reaching the end. And, uh, and, and I guess uh, Chekhov and Sulu are still going strong or strong-ish. Right. Uh, but there's Shatner at age 90. Who would have thought it? Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of great to see him embrace everything that's coming his way. Um, Because you know sometimes you can get typecast as a character and as an actor, then that kind of is almost like an albatross. But he seems to have kind of eclipsed that and is just taking whatever comes to him with uh, with a smile on his face. 
Yeah. Well, if I ever get to 90, which I probably won't because not everyone does, but if I ever do, I hope I'm, I, I'm as good natured about the whole thing as he seems to be. Excellent. So let's get to Gun Honey. What sure. can you tell us about it? So Gun Honey is a uh, four-issue miniseries that we're publishing in the Hard Case Crime comics line. Hard Case Crime was a line of books, originally traditional novels, you know, the kind with one picture on the front and everything else is words. Right. And uh, we started it, my friend and I, Max Phillips, and I started it about 17 years ago because we loved the old paperback pulp crime novels that were published in the 1940s and 1950s even the 60s, a little bit. And they usually had gorgeous art on the cover, usually a beautiful woman, someone with a gun, a scene of menace, that kind of thing. And then the stories they told were like a good crime movie, you know, like Ocean's Eleven or LA Confidential, that kind of story. And nobody was publishing books like that anymore with the beautiful painted covers and the high velocity storytelling and so on. So we said, let's just do it ourselves. We didn't think it would last 17 years. Well, it has. And part of the reason is that authors like uh, Stephen King and Michael Crichton decided to work with us, which is great. That was extremely kind and generous of them. Then about five years ago, uh, the company we work with to print and distribute our books is called Titan Publishing. And Titan also has a line of comics. And I was talking with the uh, couple that run, own and run Titan, uh, Nick Lando and Vivian Chung. They're terrific. And they said, why don't we do a line? Let's experiment with this, a line of hard case crime comics. And we did. And we, we said, we'll try this out. And I promised them that I would write one for the line. Uh, I'm a writer as well as a publisher. And you know, I said, I'll, I'll do one. But then for the first five years, I was so swamped editing everyone else's comic <laughs> that I, I would do like one page of script and that was it. And so it took right. years to write this script, uh, but I finally got it done and now it's finally coming out. And in the meantime, we published comics by people like Krista Faust and Gary Phillips and Walter Hill, the movie director. And we did uh, uh, an adaptation of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So we did other good things. Finally, Gun Honey. So Gun Honey is the story of a woman named Joanna Tan. She grew up in Singapore and fled when her family was all murdered by in a giant explosion. Now, you might think that that's an out of the blue tragedy, but her family was a family of arms dealers. So it's not quite as surprising as all that. But anyway, she fled and she had to reinvent herself in California and she created a new job for herself. She's uh, called on the street, she's called Gun Honey because she'll supply you with whatever weapon you need, where you need it, when you need it, um, no questions asked. And she's the best in the world at, at doing that. If you're in some tight spot and you need there to be a gun hidden behind the toilet tank, like uh, Michael Corleone in The Godfather, she'll make sure the gun is there. However, the no questions asked part turns out to be a little harder than she planned when she gets in over her head uh, and one of her assignments results in a very dangerous man being broken out of prison. Now you've seen issue two. I don't think anybody else uh, has seen issue two yet. Uh, so you know the prison break is in issue two and there's an unnamed US government agency that comes to her and says, listen, you let a very dangerous man out of prison. You're either gonna put him back or you're gonna take his place in prison. And so she's gonna spend the next two issues trying to find this man and get him back. But what she finds out about him, what you don't even know yet, because you haven't read issue three, there are some twists coming and uh, some surprises. I, I think people will like uh, will, will like where the story's going. Yeah, it's a, it's a great read. I enjoyed it. Um, it, it it's it got a kind of like James Bond meets um, Atomic Blonde meets Mike uh -huh. Hammer kind of feel to it. That's right. exactly right. I mean, you were going for those those examples, uh, you know, Angelina Jolie and Salt. That's not as well known. Yes. Uh, Modesty Blaze was this great. Oh, old Modesty Blaze. Comic. Remember, Modesty I remember Blaze. from so the strips like and the art. Yeah, that was amazing. 
art was great and uh, there were novels and there was even a film, uh, I think maybe two films at some point, uh, not as famous as James Bond, but this idea of a deadly, hyper-competent, incredibly skilled, also incidentally very beautiful uh, female weapons expert or female uh, expert in, in the art of spycraft and that sort of thing. Uh, the idea of this character is very appealing to me. And then I thought, well, let's make her uh, three-dimensional. Let's give her a background that's sort of interesting. Like, why does she do these things? It's not just that she's a kick-ass heroine. That's easy. Uh, you know, her, her family was murdered. And uh, I guess that's not unique. Batman's family was murdered too. Um, but I think give, giving her an emotional reason to do the things that she does and then giving her a, a storyline, which will, will uh, trigger all those old emotions and force her to confront stuff she didn't intend to and didn't expect to. That's, that's what makes the story more fun than just, you know, a run of the mill action story. So hopefully, I think issue one has a little bit of the James Bond flavor and uh, feels a little bit more run of the mill. And then we start to see the first cracks in the facade. You know, what are the things that make this story not run of the mill? And those start to creep in. And by the time you get to issue four, it's really quite cynical and quite dark. Yeah, and and Joanna is a very complicated character. Um, what was the inspiration behind creating her? Well, I was, uh, as, as I mentioned in a piece at the back of issue one, I was at lunch with a friend of mine uh, named Yuni Hong, and uh, we came up with the, I came up with the title Gun Honey because it's an anagram of Yuni Hong's name. She's a writer. Uh, she's Asian, although she's Korean, not from Singapore. And in honor of Yuni, originally I was going to give the title Gun Honey to her because it's an anagram of her name and she could write it. Uh, but then when she didn't write it, I took it back myself and wrote it. But I made the uh, main character Asian in honor of Yuni. And I thought, what are some interesting things about that, that part of the world? I had her grow up in Singapore, which is famously uh, not crime-ridden. You know, the, right. the punishments for crime in Singapore are quite severe. So the idea of a crime family operating in Singapore is almost laughable. It's almost a joke. I mean, you, you would just go across the bridge into, uh, into Malaysia, you know, in Johor, and you would do your, your crime family stuff there. But I thought, just for the fun of it, let's imagine that you have a crime family operating out of Singapore and everything goes wrong. Uh, and that was the that was the origin of the character that and the and the title. You know, if you have a book called Gun Honey, what can it be about? It's got to it can't can't not have guns in it, right? So uh, you know, it it all flowed from that first bit of inspiration. Uh, Uni said she might want to write a book for us at one point. She's she's a writer of some renown in the worlds of journalism and uh, nonfiction. And uh, but she wasn't sure she wanted to put her real name on it because right. you know our books are kind of sexy and risque and and I said you don't have to put your name on it use an anagram that's what I did when I wrote my first two novels for Hard Case Crime my real name is Charles Ardai and I just rearranged the letters and I became Richard Alias and she <laughs> said well you have a good anagram Richard Alias is that's a great alias that's a great but what can you do with Uni Hong and I thought how about Gun Honey and there you go that's that's where it all came from oh, great story that's a story uh, unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I haven't uh, I haven't sent a copy of issue one yet to uni uh, she, she did give me her blessing to tell that story in the in the back uh, but I, I I'm curious to see what she thinks of it when when she gets it and and you mentioned the the risque nature of your stories there is it's like a noir with good amount of sex and some really good violence in it what's it like putting that kind of a mix together into a novel and then transferring that into a comic book. 
You know, in, in a novel, you have some distance between the action and the reader because it's all mediated through the medium of, of language, you know, so you can say, I pulled the trigger, the gun, you know, the fired and the bullet tore through the man's skull and brain was spattered on the back wall, and nobody actually sees it happen. You don't hear the sounds, you don't smell the cordite. Well, with a comic book, you still don't smell the cordite, but you do see the actual thing that's being described. So I can write in a script very painlessly the most grotesque descriptions of violence, but once you see it drawn, you might not actually want that. You know, uh, James Bond movies have a lot of violence, but not much gore. Uh, Tarantino will give you more gore, but it's still sort of over the top, so you can laugh at it. It's not realistic. Uh, and then you've got, of course, uh, horror movies that are meant to scare you and disgust you. So there's a spectrum. And I'd say uh, Gun Honey occupies the James Bond end of the spectrum, not even really the Tarantino end, although when you get to issue three, there, there's one uh, guns blazing scene where, where it, it comes right up to the line. Uh, but you'll see that we also amplify things from issue one on. So in issue one, the sex and violence is relatively modest. You know, people are getting killed, but it's mostly off screen. Uh, in issue two, you have the prison break where you start to see things uh, that are a little bit more violent. And there's one sex scene that's really quite graphic. Uh, in issue three, it becomes a little bit more so. And so it, it, we're, we're letting the reader dip a toe in the water before he or she has to be completely submerged. It's almost like the reverse of um, HBO, where <laughs> they give you everything. Right, right. Because right. they're the afraid you'll change the channel. Right. right. And, and then when you come in like season six or whatever, it's like, where's all that stuff from season one? <laughs> right. Because by then they're a hit show and they don't have to, they feel they don't have to do the, the sort of gratuitous nudity in order to keep the eyes on the screen. Because once right. you're Game of Thrones, everyone's watching even without that. And by the way, your cast members might be saying, you know what, I did that in season one, but I don't like it so much anymore. <laughs> now that I'm a name star, I don't need to do that anymore. Um, you know, I, I, there, there are fine lines to walk, right? You're trying to entertain and there are many ways to entertain. And, and I think Sex and violence are perfectly reasonable components of a piece of entertainment, uh, but you want it to be not so much in good taste, not everything has to appeal to every reader, uh, but you want it to be genuinely appealing, you want it to be entertaining, and hopefully that's that you try to strike that balance, and for some people you will and some you won't. So you know, I'm not going to say that uh, sexy crime stories are for every reader, uh, but for anyone who likes that sort of thing, this is the sort of thing they're going to like. And for sure, and it's amazing that you were talking about, because I noticed this, I think even in issue one, about going from the novelization where you're using a lot of words to trans um, for a lot of information to the, to the reader. And then now working with an artist, a lot of that is in, up to their interpretation. And you're working with, and I wanna make sure I get this right, Ang yeah. Hor King, right? That's right. That's right. He's based in Malaysia, which is great because that's where the character's from. So he can draw it in a very authentic way. And just apart from that, his art is beautiful. Yes, very much so. And, and what I found is normally in a comic book, you might have like a, a narrative box to say such and such and such is happening, but you're just using his artwork to fill in the blanks. And if you want to catch it as a reader, you do. And right. if, and if you miss it, it doesn't, you know, impact the story. Like you still get what you need out of the narrative. That's exactly what I'm going for. And I'm glad that worked for you. In issue four, you'll see there's a sequence where they, where the main characters infiltrate a, a secret compound on an island off the coast of California. And I asked Ong to draw in, in one very full panel where there's a lot going on. There's, there's a wall of, on the outside of the compound. And I said, just draw in a rope ladder. Mm -hmm. I don't care whether anyone notices it. 
they'll need it later, you know, later, five <laughs> pages later, when you start wondering, how did Joanna get in there? Well, maybe you'll flip back and you'll see five pages earlier. Oh, there was a rope ladder. It's, I don't have a dialogue box. I don't have something saying, hey, hand me the rope ladder. It's just there. It's against mm -hmm. the wall. It's there for you to notice if you do. And if you don't, you don't. And I love doing things like that. And Ang is, is great. I describe things in, in a reasonably minimum set of words. I don't go on for pages about what everything looks like. And he delivers beautiful, beautiful art. Yeah, it's almost like a, a, a setup and payoff. Yeah. But you're working as a team to, to get it to, to work. That's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're now working on Gun Honey 2. The first one has been successful enough, knock on wood, that we're going to do a second one in Gun Honey 2. And I sent him the first five pages of script. I haven't written the rest. And uh, he sent back, started sending back some pages. And he, he sent back page, uh, I forget what page it was, page four the other day. And I said, this looks great, absolutely great. Could you just make her fingernails longer? Like in one scene, we don't see her face. We don't see anything of her except her hand reaching to touch an iPad screen. And her right. fingernails, relatively short. And I'm thinking, you know what? There's going to be a scene later where she has to escape from handcuffs. And she's got nothing, nothing to use. And maybe she's going to break off one of her fingernails and use mm -hmm. that as a makeshift lockpick. So I just said, you know what? Make her fingernails longer. I'm not sure I'm going to use that. Just make them longer. You never know. And so that's the kind of relationship we have. And it's great. You know, he'll come back with longer fingernails. It's great because, it, you know, comic book artists, comic book writers, they have to be uh, a synergistic team for it to yeah. really work. Right. Absolutely. And, and it's almost like um, a DOP and a director, right? In film. No, he's, he's both. Well, I was telling him that, you know, he, he was saying, I'm like the cinematographer. I'm saying like, you're the cinematographer and all the actors. Exactly. Right. I write the script, but every time an actor has a certain expression on his face, that's you, right? In, in a movie, you know, you're, you'd be setting the camera up, but the actors would make decisions of their own, what goes on their face, but you make all those decisions. And that's, that's great. I can't do that. I can't draw for the life of me. <laughs> so what kind of conversations did you have before you started the project with him to kind of get the feel of what you were trying to get across with your words. Well, I, you know, to some extent it's a gamble for him and for me when we first met because uh, we didn't know each other and we didn't know how well we'd work together. Plus he's on the other side of the world. So all we had was uh, these various communication technologies. We couldn't sit down on both sides of the table and, and really hash things out together. It turned out to work out well, it might not have, but it, it did. Uh, but the one thing we had going for us for the first one was that I wrote all the scripts first. So he right. had the full four issue run that he could read from beginning to end. And so he would know, for instance, that there's some big payoff in issue four that you have to plant in issues one, two, and three. Right. And so, and I, and I could, I could hint to him what those things were going to be. So there's uh, there's a sequence that involves, I won't even say what it's a piece of furniture. It's a right. really important piece of furniture at the very end of the last issue, that piece of furniture is important. And so I said, you need to see that piece of furniture at least three times before the last issue. Nobody's going to know it matters. Show it to them anyway. It's like, I don't, I don't care. You think this is a waste of time. I want to see that piece of furniture, you know? And, right. and so we had the ability. I didn't have to explain. Uh, I didn't have to hint that much because he could read the last issue and see, oh, now I get it. Now I see why that's important. Uh, but it could still, you know, it could have gone wrong, but it, uh, he's, he's just wonderful. He's, he's a young artist. This is his first, I believe, his first published work, uh, certainly his first published graphic novel. 
uh, he works traditionally. I see photos he sends of the work in progress and there's an actual drawing table with a T-square and pens and wow. none of this digital stuff. He's like, you know, Frank Frazetta with the uh, pen and ink <laughs> and he's doing all the cross hatching and I love it. It's, uh, I feel very lucky to, to work with someone like that. And then of course the cover artists, you know, a guy like Adam Hughes is someone I've admired for years and years. Basically any book that ever has an Adam Hughes cover on it, I'll buy, no matter what it is. And the idea that he was willing, given how busy he is, he was willing to try a cover for a, an unknown character. That was just above and beyond the call. And I'm so grateful to him. And, and uh, going to the, the, the variant covers, you've got quite a lineup of artists uh, you know, on hand for Gun Honey, including yeah. uh, Bill Sienkiewicz and you know, the classic Robert McGinnis. So like classic, right. So, so Bill is another one that I've loved forever. You know, growing up, uh -huh. you read his, his stuff, you see his stuff and love it. And so I was thrilled that he was willing to do it too. Uh, Bob McGinnis is best known as a movie poster painter from the 1960s. He's 95 years old right now. Uh, and he's still painting. And he painted two covers for Gun Honey, one on issue one and one on issue two. He's probably most famous for the James Bond movie posters with Sean Connery and Roger Moore back in the day. And also the, the uh, poster for Breakfast at Tiffany's with Audrey right. Hepburn with the cigarette holder and the cat on her shoulder. Mm -hmm. And he did a, a painting for the second issue of Gun Honey, which is inspired by that Audrey Hepburn poster <laughs> with our character with a cat on her shoulder. No, no cigarette holder. And there's a gun at her feet. But um, I love working with him. He's, first of all, a very nice man. And he's painted probably uh, two dozen covers for Hard Case Crime for the traditional books, mostly. Uh, but the idea that my comic could have a cover by Robert McGinnis, that's that's a thrill. You know, you you, you grow up reading this guy's, uh, well, books with this guy's covers on them and going to movies with this guy's posters on them. And the idea that he could one day illustrate something you created is just, it's a dream. Yeah, it's kind of that neat kind of spot to be in where the people you looked up to in an, in, a, in an industry that you weren't necessarily a part of yet are now working side by side with you on your stuff. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. You know, it, 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 it is, it's kind of crazy. You know, I always thought of those people as long gone, even if they mm -hmm. weren't, you know, they were young when they started in the sixties. So they're not, you know, they, they're not all 95. Uh, and some of them are gone sadly, but the idea that a kid who grows up reading, uh, you know, at, at age 10 to 20 grows up reading certain comics and then at age 40 can work with the same creators that never even occurred to me. You know, right. it's, it's like when you read about Zeus and Hera and Athena, you can't work with those guys, right? <laughs> you know, you, you read about Dickens and Hemingway, you can't work with those guys. But the idea that some of the people who wrote the Flash comics I read when I was a kid, so that was my comic. I, I was a Flash guy, I would read. And, you know, there are guys I, I you know, read the work of like Carrie Bates, the writer, or uh, saw the art of like Carmine Infantino, Infantino a great yes. flash artist. And then when I was starting in the business as a youngish guy in my early 20s, I would go to conventions and there was Carmine Infantino. And I thought when I was eight, I would mm -hmm. turn the pages and I loved your art. And the idea that he was a real flesh and blood, blood human being and I could talk to him, that's, that's just mind blowing. Yeah, especially for comics, because, you know, those creators are, are almost in the shadows. It's, it's a lot different now, right? I, I guess Stan would have been the only one who was like... Front of house. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he was like the pitch man, like supreme for comics. But most of them would have worked and not have a level of and have, have a, a, a high level of anonymity. So there's really no celebrity sure. unless you're in there. But you might know the name, couldn't spot them in a lineup. 
if yeah 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 i wouldn't know what any of these people looked i mean stan lee is different because absolutely right he he was he was a a self-promoter par excellence but uh for sure back in the day you knew what he looked like like uh you know bob guccione with a mustache actually did bob guccione have a mustache i don't remember i don't remember i don't remember it was the 70s everyone had a mustache (laughs) but um you know you're right and i think there are uh you know when you love something you look at the credits and Mm -hmm. so i knew the names but who they were I didn't know. I, I couldn't have told you. And, uh, you know, even today, I look at the uh, the comics that I read when I was a kid, I pull them out, and uh, they still hold not all of them, but they still hold up quite nicely. You know, one of these days, I'd love to, you know, go to DC and write a flash comic just for old time's sake, not like for write sure. the main run. But, right. you know, my dream would be to do a flash comic set in the era when I read it, you know, like a 1970s set flash comic, like they're doing Batman 89, and they're yes. doing Superman 77 or 78, whatever it is. Uh, now there's no equivalent because there was no great flash movie back then. Uh, no, but no. you know, that, those, those characters were my, that was my childhood, you know, the Pied Piper and Captain Boomerang and all those guys. Yeah. He had a very interesting rogues gallery. He had the best <laughs> rogues gallery. I mean, I liked the penguin and the Riddler too, but my opinion was he had the best rogues gallery. Yeah. Especially since like his, his, with his skill set, his powers, his villains had nothing to do with his powers other than, you know, reverse <laughs> flash. Right. Right, right. Exactly. And was there, I mean, I guess later in the run with the Wally West run, there were these various flash villain type characters, Right. Uh, you know, like the, I forget, some embodiment of the speed force or whatever it was, but that was not in the Barry Allen era. You're right. None of the other characters were, were particularly fast. There was the turtle, right. Mm-hmm. Who was incredibly slow. He was the opposite. So, <laughs> you know, that's something right. Uh, but very, no, very DC, right. very silver age DC. Very Silver Age DC. I love the Silver Age. So, you know, Gun Honey is not Silver Age in that way. It does have its heart in an older era, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's set in the modern day, but it has something of the flavor of the movies and books and comics that I loved growing up. Uh, right. So it's got a little bit of the social consciousness of the modern day, you know, and, and, and a little bit of the complexity and drama, but deep down, you're still just trying to have fun. For sure. And and can you speak to the enduring um popularity of true crime and hard-boiled stories like like that as a podcast is a, a segment that is exploding right now well yeah, true crime is huge and in, in fact i and i'm i don't consider myself an expert on true crime because it's in some ways a whole different field you know you would think it's it's the same thing but the crimes that go on in a crime novel and the crimes that people actually commit are really quite quite different you know agatha christie and raymond chandler are are fantasy crime it's like the difference between mm-hmm. professional wrestling and real wrestling right. or real fencing and swashbuckling <laughs> right those are two different things but having said that i think some of the impulse to listen to it and, and read about it is the same which is it gives you a peek into a world that's kind of terrifying you hope it never touches your real life but you're aware these things do go on and so there's almost a kind of horror movie peeking between your fingers at something scary uh, flavor to it and also the the staring at a wreck on the side of the highway you know morbid fascination oh my god jeffrey dahmer eight 12 people if that kind of thing is just automatically fascinating um uh, you know and with the current uh, podcast it's stuff like that guy is so obviously guilty how can he possibly think we don't believe he's guilty. How has he gotten away with it all these years? And then, you know, in, in the case of the jinx, right, he, he just got convicted after all this time. So after all the this idea time. that, you know, you can you can play along and maybe you actually will reopen a, a, a case and solve it. That's exciting. So I think that's the true crime side. The hard boiled side 
that's a little bit more like, as you said, Mickey Spillane or Raymond Chandler. That's the fantasy of a, of a tough detective or a wily criminal who is facing really tough odds and somehow manages to survive and maybe even come out on top or turn a profit. And that's, you know, go all the way back to the Knights of King Arthur or Cowboys mm -hmm. in the Wild West, this loner figure who goes on a quest and somehow against all odds manages to uh, uh, pull, pull a success out of, out of his butt. You know, that's Bruce Willis and Die Hard, right? It's, it's, it's all these great stories. And I think the hard-boiled uh, protagonists are in that category as well. Uh, with, with Gun Honey, you know, we didn't really, um, we didn't really put her in that kind of diehard-like situation where she's in, in terrible danger. She's done something, unfortunately, that's not great, and she has to undo it, and she's got to fix it, and it's very exciting, and lots of good things happen, uh, but it's not that kind of diehard situation. So for, for the second series, I thought, okay, that's where I'll put her in that kind of diehard situation. Uh, so for Gun Honey 2, she's going to have a rival who turns up mm -hmm. and uh, the rival really wants the business for herself. And so she would like Joanna to be out of business, better yet, out of uh, existence. And so things, things will get harder for Joanna in part two. So from femme fatale to diehard action hero. There you go. That, that sounds yeah. good. Yeah. I like the sound of that. You know, maybe she'll be played by Bruce Willis in the movie. We'll see. <laughs> oh, there are, there are so many uh, actresses um, that could that could fit her. Uh, it's true. Although I think one of the things that, you know, it's like Scarlett Johansson probably would do a great job, but she's not half Asian. And boy, she's going to get pilloried if she tries out for this role. So I, yeah. I hope we can find, I, we do have a deal with a, with a production company, two production companies, one of which I've worked with before. We did a TV show on sci-fi called Haven for six years. Right. Uh, and that was a lot of fun doing that. Uh, the other company is based in Malaysia and uh, has access to a lot of actors who are well known in the Asian market, not as well known in the U.S. necessarily. And I'd love to see them on the screen. You know, it's, it, we have we have uh, plenty of action heroes that look like Bruce Willis. It's time for, you know, someone who I, looks a little different. I, I totally agree. And like and Shang-Chi is a perfect example of yeah, Shang-Chi was great. I loved it. Yeah, you only you sometimes you only know what you know, and you need to kind of look this way as opposed to this way um, for what can happen next and what other possibilities are available. Yeah, and you want you want something fresh and different, you know, and and you know, it, as as much as, for instance, Shang Chi uh, harkens back to all sorts of martial arts movie tropes that are familiar. You know, when you see a giant building covered in scaffolding, if you watched any Jackie Chan movie, you know, Absolutely. they're going to be fighting on that scaffolding. It's Absolutely. not like that's a surprise, but it's not <laughs> something you've seen in a Marvel movie. Right. So it's fresh. Right. It's different. You know, you, you want to keep things fresh. It's like and it's it's not just about race. And it's not just about setting. and It's not just about location. It's just like, you know, Ant-Man is a guy who gets small. That's a different set of interesting things to put on the screen. Right. You just want something different sometimes. Not mm -hmm. the same old thing different and also reflecting the world around us like you live gotcha. in new york i live in toronto pretty multicultural yeah right and so if you if you have something that is you know not reflective of that it's not as authentic as it could be Ab absolutely and that's one of the reasons <clears throat> i like that we're working with an actual production company based in malaysia so that if we're shooting scenes in malaysia it's not like uh, when Jackie Chan shot Rumble in the Bronx and there were the Bronx mountains in the background because he <laughs> shot him in Toronto, right? Or Vancouver, I forget which. It was in Vancouver. And it was Vancouver. Vancouver. We, we had, we had know, a chuckle I'm, of that as well too. That was pretty funny. Yeah, you can laugh at that. It's not, it's not like some, <laughs> it's not a sin. I, I wasn't yeah. mad at him for it, but that wasn't the Bronx, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I want people to make this film, if this is going to be a film or a TV show, 
I should be so lucky. But if it is, I'd like it to be authentic. I'd like it to actually look like the part of the world where it's supposed to take place. And, uh, you know, when, when I was talking to the producers, they were talking about the live action Mulan, which I liked. I thought I, I enjoyed the live action Mulan, but they were full of complaints of, about it. And reasonably so. They said, listen, you know, we're Asian. We look at this movie and we see everything that's wrong with it. You know, right, you're right. a white guy. You don't notice all the same things we notice. And they're absolutely right. And so if we're going to do gun honey and some of it's going to be taking place in Asia, I want people in Asia to look at it and say they got that right. You know, and just like if I'm going to set something in New York, I want it to be something, I, you know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I don't want people to get in a cab on 52nd Street and two minutes later, they're in Queens. How they get there? You know, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And like it, it's it, because also too, you have your world set up, right? It's kind of yeah. like getting back to Game of Thrones, how you would take a season to get from one place to the other. And then in the last season, they're there in 20 minutes. Right, right. Because you don't so, want to see the whole trip again. Right. And and they're also on a, on a real ticking clock because they don't have an eighth season, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you're setting up your own worlds, you want it where anyone who's from New York goes, oh, yeah, I feel that. Anyone who has been to New York goes, oh, yeah, I think I feel that. And then right. if you haven't been, you're like, I want to go to New York. Right. And I want to take that trip and I want to see where Joachim Phoenix was dancing on those stairs. Right. You know, right. I want to see where, where is that? Uh, yeah. I, I think that's important. I will say that there is the, uh, the shorthand you're talking about is valuable. And I think it's legitimate. Like if you set up that Joanna can infiltrate any kind of location in the first issue, by the time you get to the fourth issue, you can just show an impregnable fortress and then on the next page she's in, and you don't have to show every step of how she got in because, you know, she's our hero. We get it. She can do yes. that stuff. And then sometimes it, it could even be more fun. We don't see how she did it, right? We just know she's so good at it. She got it. Uh, exactly. So you can play with that a little bit and have some fun with it. Yeah. And, and so I'd like to get back to something that you put, I think was in the, in the first issue. Okay. Um, it was it, when you were talking about the curse of a writer. I'm just going to see if I can read it. Oh, right, 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 right. I said, where do you get your ideas? Everyone That's asks, it. where do you get your ideas? So can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, when you do interviews like this, or you're on a panel at a convention, or, or, or a random person comes up to you, they want to interact, and they want to ask a question. They don't always have a substantive question that they're really interested in the answer to. Mm -hmm. uh, or sometimes maybe this is what they're interested in the answer to. And they say, so where do you get your ideas? It's just the most common question somebody asks. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't mean to mock it, it's fine. Uh, yeah, but yeah. the problem is you generally don't know where you get your ideas, it's, right? You wake true. up one morning and you say, well, what's the famous story is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He said he woke up from a dream, a nightmare, and that was it. He, he, that was what he dreamed. He wrote it down as fast as he could. And there was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So where'd that come from? Who knows? Uh, but in this case, I did know where it came from because I had that lunch with Yuni Hong and I came up with the anagram of her name and I wanted to do a story called Gun Honey and it had to have guns in it. And I wanted it to be in honor of Yuni. So I made the character Asian and so on. So I can point to all the steps that turned into Gun Honey. I can't do that for most of what I write. And I think most writers can't. So you, you are asked this question that you just can't answer. And so different, different writers come up with jokey answers like Harlan Ellison, the famous uh, writer behind the original Star Trek uh, episode, The City on the Edge of Forever and many, many other great things. Uh, he used to say, if somebody said, where do you get your ideas? He said, I, I have a, uh, a company in Schenectady and they send me five ideas a day. Uh, and people would presumably understand it was a joke, although maybe one or two said, oh, really? Can I get the address? Uh, I, I would guess that uh, most answers writers give when asked about anything, how do you do X? They don't know. You know writing is not like like uh, embroidery or uh, something else where you can say, well, there's a pattern, I follow it, I learned how to do it. 
uh, writing is just kind of a, a messy dip into the subconscious and you pull out whatever whatever comes on the ladle and you hope it's something good. And if it's not, you dip it back in. Uh, I think when you're creating entertainment rather than high art, you know, you're, when you're not aiming to, to do high art, you will sometimes uh, come up with a process that's like, what movies did I like growing up? Right. What comic books did I like growing up? How can I give a new generation some of that pleasure that I got? So sometimes there's a, there's a process to it, uh, but I still think most of it is just inspiration. It's like, I was just writing a short story for a collection. The editor asked me to, to contribute a story. And in the first scene of the story, there's a woman who's attacked and her husband's very frightened and the cops come to talk to him. And one of the cops hands him his uh, business card and says, okay, I, I understand you can't talk now. You're overwrought, uh, take my card and call me. I didn't know when I wrote that opening scene that that business card was gonna be important. But then 40 pages later, I'm trying to find a way for that character to get into someone's uh, home, a, a bad guy's home, and that bad guy's not opening the door for anyone. And I was thinking, how does he get in? How does he get in? And I was lying in bed, and then suddenly I sat up and I said, the business card. He's going to go to the front door. He's going to hold that business card in front of the lens, and the guy's going to see it. It's NYPD, and he's going to open the door. Right. I didn't know when I planted it that it was going to be useful. <laughs> it just happens, you know? It's, it's the whole thing of like, sometimes characters write themselves. So um, obviously there's a structure that you follow, right? Yeah. But it's nothing that you have to, like a, like a recipe, you must put in certain amount eggs. of something, right? Yeah, yeah. But there are certain things and elements of your story of, and when you're writing that they beckon for later, like they, 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 they almost force their way into whether it's a character's personality, something, as you've mentioned, like the card, which is an element that you thought might've been a throwaway. Yeah. Literally. I thought he was going to throw it away. Yeah. Literally they find their way back into the story. And sometimes it comes through when you're, you're reviewing it or you get stuck that, that then, as you mentioned, it pops in either through a dream over dinner, riding the subway, okay. something. Yep. Yeah, and then you get out your cell phone and before you forget it, you say, wait, wait I've got a good one. Uh, you know, in, in Hollywood scripts, you see this a lot with dialogue where they, but it feels artificial. When, when they do it well, it doesn't, but often you see that they plant some line of dialogue early in a script that you just, you can see it coming from a mile away. And right. you know, that line of dialogue is going to come right back, spoken by a different character in an opposite context. And it's going to be so artificial and inorganic and fake but they're trying to plant and, and, and read, right? You know, they want something in act one that they can pull in act. And that's when, when that happens in a bad way, that's someone following a recipe, you know, right. you gotta plant something. Uh, but when it happens organically, when you accidentally put something in act one and you say, oh my God, what I put in there is exactly what I needed. That feels great. You know, that that's one of those moments that that feels really great. And all the best scripts you can, uh, you know, you go back and like Die Hard, great script. You can find the stuff in the early scenes that turns out to be important later, but you didn't see it coming. So it's all about planning something so uh, inconspicuously that you don't see it coming, but conspicuously enough that when it comes, you're yes. satisfied. Like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I, I'm not going to come up with a good example, but you know, we can all think of scripts where you get to the end and you say, Oh my God, that's great. You know, <laughs> character comes back or something. Right. Or something that they had in their pocket or, you know, yes. you know, the good, like uh, classic one for me, I'll just think of this one is yeah. uh, star Wars millennium Falcon always breaking down. Right. Uh -huh. So 
he he they you know they're trying to get away. I think it was an empire. Yep. And he's like, I thought they fixed it, right? And Lando sounds just like Han Solo. Like Han, right? <laughs> and you and can that's then, completely that and that works, right? And so it completely works. Like, and you know, without kind of describing their friendship or going deep into their friendship, you realize these guys have a history. Yeah, absolutely. And it's connected through this ship, right? And it just builds the story that way. I, I love that sort of thing. And that's not even one that specifically pays off in the plot, right? That's really yeah. all about character. I mean, it matters, right? Because you know the plot plays out a certain way because of it, but it's not like that's the key that unlocks a, a no. box. It's really about character. So that, that's what I'm trying to do here. You know, the um, uh, Joanna is paired with a government agent that she really doesn't want to spend any time with. He's relatively handsome, so <laughs> it can't be too unpleasant for her, but it's, but, right. but you know, they, they have a kind of sparring relationship at first and then they reach a kind of, detente uh, in issue two and the banter between them, the conversations between them, to my mind, is some of the most important stuff in, in, in the book. And when anyone describes this book to their friends, they're going to say, weapons expert, prison break. In issue three, there's a scene in a spa, like, uh, you know, in Eastern Promises. Mm -hmm. They'll mention the plot. But if they remember anything about the book and, and feel anything about it, I think it's going to be the dinner table conversation between Joanna and, and Brooke, uh, where he says to her, you know, does it even matter to you who you hurt? And right. she says, yes, of course it matters. What, what about you? You think your boss never killed anyone? And that conversation, the, 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 nothing's blowing up. No. You know, no guns are being fired, but that conversation means more to me as a reader than uh, than than all the all the pyrotechnics, you know, because it, it gives them some depth. And and you need the quiet moments to make the pyrotechnics mean something. Yeah, right? it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark is all about the stunts and they're great stunts. But the quiet moment when Indy thinks uh, that uh, his 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 long lost love has been uh, blown up and mm -hmm. he's uh, he's miserable and drinking, and that's a quiet moment. And that's you know that makes him human that makes him a character you care about for sure for sure now i want to get back get into a little bit of history because we have a little bit of time left sure. you started in the world of finance how did you go from finance to editor publisher writer it's actually the opposite and and it's a, it's a great question but it goes the other direction i started as a writer so huh. when i was a teenager i wanted to be a writer and that was mostly because my brother was an engineer and could fix things. And at age 15, he would go around the neighborhood to all the ladies' hair salons and he'd say, do you have any broken hair dryers? And if they did, he'd say, I'll, I'll fix it for you for five bucks. <laughs> so he would go to all the salons awesome. and he'd get five bucks. And I would say to myself, I don't know how to fix a hair dryer. What can I get five bucks for? And all I could think of was writing. I couldn't do anything else good. So right. I right. said, I'm gonna write for magazines. And that's how I started. When I was a teenager at 13, 14, 15, I would go to all the video game magazines. Mm. And I would say, this, this was before Gamergate or anything. I would say, I wanna write about video games. Would you let me? And they would give me, you know, 50 bucks to review a video game, which was great for a 15 year old kid. That's pretty and, good. And, and I'd get the free game, you know? That's and so what, I started you, you scored twice. I scored twice. And, uh, and so I did that for years, age 13, 14, 15, all through college, I was doing uh, magazine writing. And then I started writing short stories for, for mystery magazines. And that was great. And then I graduated from college and my mother with a degree in English, which is absolutely useless. It's, it's not going to get you a job anywhere. And my mother would say things like, so, you know, with your degree in poetry, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, um, uh, I got a recruiting letter randomly out of the blue from a financial firm. And I almost threw it in the garbage, literally. I, I just thought, I, you know, I don't want to work on fi in finance. I have no interest in this. I'm a writer. 
But I, I sent my resume in because why not? And they offered me a job, which astonished me, you know, and I tried it. And I told them very honestly, when I went there for the first time, I said, listen, I don't really like Wall Street. I don't, I don't like the people who like Wall Street. I'm not going to stay here very long. You know, uh, just don't don't be upset if I quit after a year, because I probably will. And they said, OK, you know, that's a deal. See if you can do it and see if you like it. And I kept at it. You know, I'm, I'm still, in fact, working part time for that same company 30 years later. Wow. And it turned out to be something that I could do. It turned out to be something I was reasonably good at. I'm not a, a stock trader. I, I don't know how to do that stuff any more than I know how to fix uh, hair dryers. Uh, but inside a financial services company, there are all sorts of jobs that need to be done, whether that's, you know, marketing or, you know, there are certain kinds of writing or recruiting or whatever needs to be done. And I've, I, you know, over the course of 30 years, I've done almost all of it. And uh, it's okay, but it's not, it's not my first love. My first love was writing. And so between when I got the job in finance and I don't know, five years later, I didn't write anything because I was too busy trying to learn the job. Uh, but I knew eventually I would want to get back to it. And the company that I work for is, is kind enough and, and, and run by people who are uh, you know, flexible enough that at one point I went to them and I said, hey, listen, I really want to uh, spend a significant amount of time on writing and publishing. I don't need to quit unless you want me to, but uh, I have to go part-time. And kindly, they let me do that. And so now I'm part-time there and part-time writing and publishing. And it, it's a perfect fit for me, you know. It, it, it's the uh, best of both worlds for everybody. Best of both worlds. I hope so. You know, I hope they're happy, but, you know, they haven't, they haven't, they haven't given me the ax yet. So presumably <laughs> they're happy. Um, and then I also spent some time, I, I started an internet company when that was happening, you know, in the, in the 1990s. Uh, one of my coworkers at the time was Jeff Bezos, who went on to start Amazon. Wow. Uh, his his wow. became a little bigger than mine did, which is fine. God bless him. Uh, <laughs> I now sell plenty of books through Amazon, and I'm 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 happy to do that. Uh, but I started a company called Juno, which was one of the early uh, internet access providers, and I did that for about seven years. And uh, you know, you could ask me, how did you go from being a writer to starting an internet company? And the answer is, I have no idea. But I had this idea for an internet company, and I thought, okay, I can do that. Uh, that went for about seven years, and and then I, you know, we then it got sold, and I went back to doing what I love, which is uh, writing and publishing. I also think too that, you know, they say this in sports as well too, that when you diversify, it actually makes you better at whatever your skill set is. And I think that I, works. I think that's true. Although it was like Bo Jackson and like Michael Jordan playing baseball was not a success. Yes, um, like you're you're not necessarily going to be at the pinnacle of everything that you do. Right. But it informs the other things that you do. And I, and I think for a writer, the more that you do and the more that you know, actually allows you to create even better than if you were just singularly focused on one thing. Because now I, I totally agree. you can speak to finance, you can speak to entrepreneurs, you can speak to what it takes to, to create a business, you know, sell a business, dealing with all different types of people. And then those people can then sprinkle your narratives Absolutely. I think something. it's more important for writers than for almost anything else. I mean, maybe it's just as important if you're directing movies or something like that. But anytime you're you're in the uh, field of creative invention where you are uh, trying to depict a world, if you're a painter, you, you, you know, let's say the only thing you ever saw was, you know, fruit, you could paint still lifes of fruit. But what if you want to paint a dog? Well, you've never seen a dog. It helps to see a lot of things. And for writing, it's the same, exactly as you said. If you've never lived in some of these worlds, how are you supposed to describe them? You know, uh, it's like you, you, you do read books by writers who have never been to the places they've written about. And you can tell 
or, or you, you, you think you can tell, who knows? But uh, I mean, look, when, when Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote about Mars, he'd never been to Mars. That's okay, that's forgivable. No one had right. been to Mars. But when he tried to write about Africa, he was not writing about Africa he'd been to, right? And, and it was just, Tarzan was okay, those books were fun, but it wasn't, it was not what you would call authentic. And uh, I would hope that if I'm writing about New York, it comes across that I've, I've been here, I've eaten the hot dogs at the carts on the street. Uh, <laughs> I admit in, in, in some of my books, I, I wrote an adventure novel, which you know is, is probably more in the Indiana Jones vein. It's not so much crime fiction. And the character starts in uh, Budapest, where my family originally came from, and uh, then New York. So I knew those two. But by the end of the book, he's in Sri Lanka. I have never been to Sri Lanka. So I absolutely guarantee I got it wrong. And I apologize. Let me say right up here for anyone from Sri Lanka who read my description, it was all wrong. And I'm sure it was. I apologize because I did all my research on Google. I went I, I did a lot of research on Google. You know, I looked at maps and things, but I guarantee I got it wrong. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to go to Sri Lanka and see what it's like, but Google was a little cheaper. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I guess with current world conditions, it might be even more difficult now for writers to, to, to actually get the, the stuff they need to feed their muse because, you know, travel is restricted and even hanging out in a bar is not what it used to be. Right. Right. You want to hear conversations. You want to know what people are saying. And yeah, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. I think it's got to be atrophying people's uh, muscles, physical muscles too. But I mean, the writing muscles, creative muscles, I wonder what's going to happen. I, first of all, I hope the pandemic ends at some point. I hope it doesn't go on the rest of our lives. But yeah. if even if it's like, let's say two years from now, it's gone. It's history. You know, it's something you're going to tell your grandkids about. And they're going to say, what was that thing around the turn of the century where people were wearing masks? And you'll say, oh, let me tell you. But I think you're going to see a lot of books that just ignore it. It's like yeah. they're set in some never, never time before the pandemic, after the pandemic, because you just don't want to deal with it. Uh, it's like when I'm writing, uh, I haven't written a novel in a while, when I'm writing short stories, it's like, I don't want to deal with, unless it's about the pandemic, I don't want to deal with the pandemic. I want to write a story about regular life where people get on the subway or they eat a you know, sandwich or they run down the street, you know, having a gunfight, whatever it is. I don't want to have to deal with, oh, and was the store open? You know, mm. like, were there paper towels? Was there toilet paper? <laughs> I just don't want to deal with it. And so I-, right. I I saw an interview with Stephen King where he said his new book, by the way, this is an excellent, excellent book called Billy Summers. He, he, we didn't publish it. Uh, we've published three books by Stephen King and he's a wonderful man. This one was by his traditional publisher, Scribner. It's fantastic. About a hitman doing one last job. It really is the kind of thing we would have published, but, but right. you know, they didn't. And he said he was writing it before the pandemic. And he had one of the characters, like there's an empty apartment and the, the characters hole up in somebody else's empty apartment. Why is it an empty apartment? Because they went on a cruise. Mm -hmm. And he was like, they couldn't go on a cruise. There's a pandemic. Right. There are no cruises. And so he, he, I saw him on an interview saying, you know, I set the book back in time one year. It was going to be set in 2020 or 2021. I made it 2019. Now they can go on a cruise. Right. right? And I think you're going to see a lot of that in books. It's like, so when's this book set? Eh, like before. Right. 2015. After. Yeah. Eh, somewhere, but not right. during, because it's, just, it's, it's such a burden, unless that's the subject you want to talk about. You know, it's like, you wouldn't set a story in on the border of France and Germany in 1917 unless you want to write about World War One. Exactly. Like, there are trenches, there are guns, there are people dying. Don't, don't, don't put it there, right? Make it 1902 or make it 1983. <laughs> you know, if you're going to pick 1917, it better be about the war. And if you're going to pick 2020, it better be about the pandemic. 
And so we, we've lived through something extraordinary. And uh, I think a lot of people will want to forget about it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, what you do and what a lot of other creators do is it's to help us escape. Right. Yeah. That, that is that is honestly my goal. You know, with hard case crime, the funny thing is some of the books are dark. You know, some of the books are kind of they make you think like, is life terrible? Is life good? You know, what situations would make you despair? What if you were facing a real moral crisis? Mm -hmm. But it's still escapism. You know, yeah. this is not this is the, the point of this is to give you a break, you know, for two hours, three hours over the course of a night, maybe two nights if it's a long book, you just put your brain, check your brain, put it on the shelf and read and enjoy a story about people. Uh, maybe they're going through terrible things, but that's their terrible things. It's not your terrible thing. You know, enjoy it. It's like, you wouldn't want to be Sean Connery. I mean, he's, he's, he's good looking and he's got a beautiful voice and you wouldn't want to be James Bond. That's kind of a bad life. I at least, yes. I wouldn't want to be, I love watching James Bond. I don't want to be James Bond. <laughs> First of all, my aim is lousy. I wouldn't, I, I'd be dead so fast, but it's like, I don't want to be Joanna Tan but I like watching her, right? You don't want to be Uma Thurman and kill Bill. No. But, but it's, it's fun to watch. So uh, you, you, don't want, you don't want to live in the world of Mad Max, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, living, so, yeah living, so living vicariously through these characters, I think is what really feeds us. I think that's why video games, um, yes. especially like first person shooters and stuff like that are so popular. Uh, but there is, there is something about those characters where there's like maybe 5% of us or 10% of us where you go, I wouldn't mind being that person for, for a day, for a day. Right. Yeah, I had this idea and no one ever did this as far as I know. It's like in New York, every October, right about this time of year, there are haunted houses. I don't know how they work in the pandemic. They may or may not, for all I know, they don't exist anymore, but haunted houses for Halloween. And those are like a first person shooter in real life, except, you know, no shooting, but you right. walk through room after room, you know what a haunted house is like. I said, why doesn't somebody do that? other than Halloween, like do a James Bond version of a haunted house where instead of the goal being to scare you, it's like you go through room one as a casino and you get to play right. background. And then room two is, you know, right. a sauna and there's some mysterious villain who talks to you in, in dangerous ways and his bodyguards are there. Wouldn't that be fun? And you'd get to go through like six, seven rooms and you have an adventure and you dance you know, on the dance floor with a beautiful woman. If you did it like an escape room. Yeah, like that. If it was a James Bond theme escape room and you could, you could almost go through an adventure based on whatever clues you have to break and stuff like that and people that you encounter that I think you're onto something there I think that would be great and so I've done a bunch of escape I love escape rooms they're fun yeah, they're, they're you're fantastic. usually the only one there right or you yeah. you and your friends yes. and what I'm imagining is exactly that but maybe a, a little fewer puzzles and then you have actors mm -hmm. like in a, in a haunted house you've got the guy with the chainsaw and you've got you know the person with the joker makeup on and, and he's you know almost grabbing you so it would be that but with actors yeah what oh my gosh I went to a couple of them before the world fell right um where it was almost like it was like a dinner theater okay and the actors are sitting with you and you're going through um whatever the narrative is but it's almost like it's interactive i can't remember what they're right. called but yeah, that's kind I've of a scenario like that. yeah. yeah so that kind of thing I mean, for all i know they've even done a spy one i don't know yeah uh, i've seen some things like that i've gone to one or two and generally i find the concept is great but then you're sitting next to the actor and you kind of don't know what to say right and so it's like Hi, <laughs> right, nice soup. And uh, so I think you need enough instruction, like you yes. have to understand your mission well enough that you know what to say, or good enough actors that they tease out of you the kinds of things that you ought to be saying. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, it's, anyway, it's an idea. So maybe there'll be a gun honey escape room in New York someday. I, I am looking forward to that. And before we wrap, what can we look forward to from you 
and your imprint moving forward? Oh, thanks for asking. So as I said, Gun Honey 2 is in the works, but it'll probably take a year before we've got all the art drawn and the book published and so on. So that's coming in 2022. In the meantime, we have a book coming in just 10 days, I have 11 days called Five Decembers, which is probably the best book we've ever published. Certainly it's one of the best. Great title. It's, thank you. I, it, so the author sent it. I didn't know what Five Decembers was about. It's a World War II story. It's really, really good. It's a little bit like LA Confidential at the beginning. It's about a Honolulu police detective and he catches a double homicide and he's trying to figure out who killed these two people in this grisly fashion. And the, um, the, the uh, path to the killer leads overseas and he follows it. He's in Hong Kong and it's December 6th, 1941 and Pearl Harbor happens wow. while he's in Hong Kong. And now he's trapped. He's stuck. He can't get home. And I won't spoil anything that happens, but it becomes a very different sort of book. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's called Five Decembers by a guy named James Kestrel, who you will not know his name because it's a brand new name. He's a writer who's written some other books, but this is so different from what he's written before and so good that we decided together with him that we wanted to give him a fresh start with a new name and a new identity because this is such a special book. And so Five Decembers, fantastic book. And then, uh, so that's coming in just 11 days. And then next year we have, uh, there's a writer named Donald E. Westlake, this is a weird one. Donald E. Westlake is better known probably as Richard Stark. And he wrote the um, Parker books, which became the oh, comics okay. that Darwin Cook did. Right. Uh, the Man with the Getaway Face. And there were a bunch of these Parker comics and Parker novels and uh, movies as well. I think Jason Statham played the character in a movie called Parker. Yes. Uh, Mel Gibson played him in a movie called Payback. So there, there's, yes. that's the, what he's most famous for. When he died, so he died about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. When he died, he left behind some unpublished manuscripts, things he had tried writing that were different from what he was known for. He wrote a book called Call Me a Cab, which is about a woman who hails a cab on 62nd Street in Manhattan and says to the cab driver, how much to drive me to Los Angeles? He says, you're out of your mind. No, no, how much to drive me to Los Angeles? Well, it'd be thousands of dollars. Okay, I'll pay you. And the rest of the book is their drive across America from New York to Los Angeles she is, she owes a man an answer to his marriage proposal. He said, are you going to marry me? And she said, I'll tell you as soon as I get to Los Angeles. She doesn't want to fly. That's too soon. She wants time to right. make up her mind. So right. she's driving to Los Angeles. It is a great book. There's not a single crime in the book. Not one. Well, they, they, they speed at one point on the highway, they're speeding. That's the crime. <laughs> it, we would not normally publish this book because we're hard case crime. We publish crime novels. There is no crime in it. This is a romantic comedy. It's funny. It's witty. It's great. And we're publishing it because it's Donald Westlake and because it's great. And we're telling everybody we're publishing it in February for Valentine's Day. Nice. Valentine's Day is not just for massacres. We're going to do <laughs> uh, a, a love story on Valentine's Day. And we, I, I dare all my readers, all the people who only like hard case crime because we're hard and crime, try this one. This one's weird, but it's fun. And it's, it's a great book. So Call Me a Cab by Donald Westlake next February for Valentine's Day. Oh, both of those sound great. They're, they're fun books. They're, they're both really good books. And there'll be other things. If you go to our website, hardcasecrime.com, spell the way it sounds, uh, you'll see all of our books. We always post them a couple of months before they're available. And so just take a look and you know, you, you won't go wrong. Our, our books, I'm not saying out of a hundred plus books, we've never published a stinker. We probably have. Uh, you won't go wrong. You're, even, even the ones that are uh, maybe not at, at the very top of the list, uh, they're a lot of fun. you know. And I think you're going to have fun reading Hard Case Crime. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Charles, I want to thank you for spending some time with us here. Uh, it was great chatting with you and learning more about Gun Honey and yourself. And thank I'm wishing you, you all you. the best. Absolutely. Talk to you again. All right. You take care. You too. All right.